All right. All right, so let's look at that passage again. It says, likewise, all right, it says, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So likewise means just as or just like. So just as or just like what? We have to go back into First Peter to 2.13, where we were a couple weeks ago, where it, it sets up this whole topic. And Peter starts with this whole submission theme uh, this way. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. This command, this submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, is based off of the scriptural injunctive that all authority is God-based and God-given. In other words, all the structures, all the things that we know on this planet in terms of government, that sort of thing, has been instituted by the Lord. Uh, It does not mean that there is not corruption or lack of wickedness in authority, but the command is to deeply trust the Lord in all of these situations. A modern-day current uh, parable or picture of that would be the present elections. All right? Um, they are stirring up tremendous angst among people. And a lot of people are wondering what to do and, and that sort of thing. And, and God commands us that we pray and trust him through that God uses all of that. And even if we wonder how it will work out, we have to trust him. And so Peter's then making this tie. Just as we are to submit ourselves to human authority, like here, for the Lord's sake is the key phrase in there. For the sake of Jesus. Likewise, uh, the next logically step progresses to wives. Submit yourselves to your husbands, again, for the Lord's sake. Now, specifically, notice that the context it's placed in here. Let's go back to the passage. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, another translators say do not believe, right? Um, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure uh, conduct. The cultural setting for this, uh, what Peter's writing about, for this command was that many were coming to Christ and more than a few women were coming to Christ and it wasn't always true that their husbands came to Christ with them. In other words, in the process of Peter and Paul going throughout the known world and establishing churches, uh, sometimes one part of the couple would come to faith and the other part person wouldn't. And so in this case, Peter's talking to wives who potentially would have a husband that has not come to faith, that they could be one. Um, and the question is, okay, so if I, if I have a husband who's not saved, now what? What do we do? And that's what Peter's addressing here. Uh, by the way, uh, the disciple Timothy was a product of this kind of union. Remember that his mother and grandmother were believers, but his father wasn't. His father was a Greek. So the disciple Timothy came out of that type of setup. So both Paul and Peter had to deal with this situation multiple times over. It was a common one uh, where one of the marriage partners was a believer and the other one was not. And the general rule of thumb that was advocated was what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in his first epistle in chapter 7. Let's take a look at that. You can turn there. It's also up on the screen. This is 1 Corinthians 7. It's towards the end of the chapter, starting with verse 12. Uh, So he says, 
to the rest, I say, so there's this whole chapter on these situations. And now he comes to this. The rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Notice here that uh, this is prescriptive. The leaders of the church didn't necessarily have the word from the Lord, but they said, what's best practice? What would be the best way to go about this? And they came to consensus and said, here's what we offer you. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. It goes on to say, Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, the, the injunction here was if the non-believer decides to separate and walk away, you can let that happen. But don't you do that because you don't know if your husband or wife will end up being saved. And so you need to uh, live before them in such a way that they have the opportunity to come to know Christ. And so the question then is, all right, if I'm in that situation, how does one do that? What if I can't really talk about it? Well, ladies, specifically, how are you to win them? Look at the passage again. What Peter says is, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, and here's the part, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So notice that it's the way you react. It's the way you treat them that tells them that something's different. Paul highlights the same distinction in Ephesians 5 when he says, this is the the marriage chapter, uh, and he says at the end of it, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. What Peter and Paul were trying to highlight here is that what God asks of each partner in the relationship is to do something that they are not naturally good at. Guys, we're coming back to us in two weeks. And we are asked to agape love our wife. In other words, a selfless love. To love them as ourselves. To lay our life down for them. But wives, you're instructed to um, respect your husband. Look at the Peter passage again. Notice in here it says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What Peter's trying to illustrate here is that when it comes to this type of situation, if you're talking about evangelizing, it's an issue of the heart. right? It's a heart issue. It's something that emanates from the heart. And... When you can't verbally win someone, what you do is you demonstrate it with your actions. So the idea was being is that what Peter was counting on, what Paul was counting on, is when a person comes to Christ, there should be some transformation. There should be something that's noticeable. There should be an observable shift in the person who's come to Christ and now possesses the Holy Spirit. 
right? A difference that the other person would, would even recognize. And so Peter's uh, talking about that. And um, ladies, I want you to know when you look at that, notice it, doesn't, it does not say uh, by your loving and pure conduct. Now, as a lady, almost instinctively, we flip that and say, yes, I love him, right? But it's not asking you to love him. It's asking you to be respectful. I want to thank uh, Emerson, uh, Christian author and speaker, Emerson Egerichs, for highlighting this distinction in his book, as well as his CD series called Love and Respect. Some of you probably read that, probably heard that. He points out that uh, the command to a man and the command to a woman in marriage, in the marriage relationship, is different. A woman needs love. Therefore, a man is commanded to agape love his wife. And again, guys, we'll come back to that uh, in two weeks. Uh, but a man needs respect. Ladies, what you need to understand is men seek out honor. They look for places where they will be honored. And they will flock to that if they find it. Okay? And a man would rather be in a home where he's honored and respected than loved. And therefore, a wife is commanded to respect her husband. Why? Because their needs are different. Egerix points out that most wives do not get this. They want to love their husband exactly the same way they love their girlfriends. And it doesn't work out very well. You've noticed there's a difference between men and women, right? We No? You're looking... Quite neutral right there. Uh, we did our prayer group this last week, and uh, it was fun because we went to the Sanders there in our group. And, and what the thought was for the night, because we have a lot of kids in the prayer group, is that, hey, this would be a good night. We'll take the guys and the, the dads and the sons will all go out on the deck, and the moms and the daughters will all go into the living room, and we'll pray as uh, you know gender, but older and younger joined together. And so it was really good. Have you ever noticed that men and women pray differently? Right? So as guys, we were efficient. All right? We got out there, said, all right, we got a job to do. What's your request? Bap, 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 bap. We went around. Everybody did it. Said, good. Anything else? Nope. All right, let's pray. Everybody went around. Everybody prayed. We said, good. Where's dessert? All right? Well, there was no dessert yet because the ladies weren't done praying. Okay? Because, see, ladies have to share. Ladies have to get their heart out there. Ladies have to connect right and so they're talking and we waited for a while and then we decided well we'll have some dessert anyways and and then even the daughters came out and had dessert and the moms are still sharing right because that's how they do they got to get their words out and they have to share their heart and so they pray in depth and and they pray connected any way better or worse no they're just really different guys pray differently than gals do and so Edgar points out uh, that there's this distinction. And then the other distinction is that there's a fatal flaw in most women's strategies with their husbands, and that is this. We approach the respect issue this way. I will, yes, Pastor Steve, I will respect him when he earns my respect. You ever heard that said before? I will respect him when he earns my respect. Now, I was trying to think of how to put that in a way that, ladies, you could hear that the way a man hears that. So I'm going to try this and see if this works. But um, imagine that the Lord comes to you and what he says to you is, ladies, I will love you when you earn my love. 
Okay, how, how would you react to that? So then in that system, will you ever be loved? No, right? So how desperate would that make you feel? Okay, that desperate that little twinge you just felt in there? That's exactly how desperate your husband feels when you tell him you will respect him when he earns your respect. He recognizes he'll never get it. it might not even try. Game over. Okay? Respect must be given just like love must be given. It's what the Lord is commanding here. Egrex used the illustration of a couple who were having, they were having a very difficult time in their marriage and, and he asked the man, does your wife love you? Yep, he said. Then he asked the man, does your wife like you? Nope. Okay. What she didn't understand is that her attempts to love him came across as dishonoring, demeaning, and mothering, i.e. very disrespectful. And he was dying under that. And usually when guys do that, they go, well, we'll cover that in two weeks. All right. Come back. Peter goes on to extend the object lesson this way. What he says is, all right, so if you're trying to do this and you're trying to be respectful, ladies, he says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. I like the King James Version. It says merely from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that your inner self, that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Right? says it's great worth in God's sight to be able to have a gentle and quiet spirit. In other words, to be able to have peace in your spirit. Now, employing this, it's not saying you shouldn't look good. Ladies, as guys, we like it when you look good. All right? That's a big deal. But it's saying don't depend on your outward beauty in this situation. Depend more on your heart. Your heart should be more beautiful than your outward looks. And so when we put this together, there's four combinations that can come off of this statement that Peter makes. We can be ugly in appearance and ugly in heart. We can be beautiful in appearance and ugly in heart. We can be ugly in appearance but beautiful in heart. Or we can be beautiful in appearance and beautiful in heart. Now I was going to put faces up there and, and ladies up, and I went, no, that's no good. Because we're in trouble. Well, all of a sudden, no, I don't have that. She's got that. That's better than me. I don't like that. All these body shaming. I went, oh, we're in trouble. All right, I'm going to say. So I thought we'd use food groups. All right? We'll do food groups instead of that. Now, the first one is a gross one that even I didn't want to do. And I went to the store, actually looked for it. The gal actually went in the back to see if they had any. And they didn't. Uh, so I was grateful I couldn't pull off the illustration. But if we're talking about ugly in appearance and ugly in heart, one of the things I thought of for food was this. Here's a cow's tongue. All right? Yeah. And they're slimy, and they, if you hold them up, they stink. All right? And when you cook them, they smell worse. All right? Now, I grew up in the Midwest. People actually ate this, and I don't know why, but they did. And, uh, and some people like it. Okay? But for most people, that ain't good to look at, and that ain't good to bite into. All right? And what Peter's saying is, don't be like that, ladies. Don't be ugly on the outside. Don't be ugly when someone bites. You ever see someone like that? They're just nasty, right? Just rawr. And you know, from, you can feel it from a mile away. They are letting you know, none shall pass. Do not cross this, right? They are not nice to deal with. They are not nice to be around. And, and that is not the type of heart 
uh, type of person that you want to be. The second one is a little more deceptive. I can use actual little props here. So the, the second one is it looks pretty on the outside. Here's a lemon. Now, this is supposed to be a brand new shiny lemon. This was on our counter and it's a kind of a wilted, dehydrated lemon. All right. But you ever see the lemons in the store when all of a sudden they're really shiny and beautiful? And, or it, like in California, you ever seen a lemon tree? They're so pretty and they smell. You can, it's it. But when you bite into this sucker, what do you get? Sour, right? Woo! Ding, ding. And that's what some wives are like. They look beautiful on the outside, but they are sour on the inside, right? And it doesn't take much to bump them and you've run into the sourness. I read an article a couple of years ago and it was uh, for single guys. And the article was for single guys on why you should not date a 10. All right, because, you know, the whole idea of I'm going to score a 10 and a gal and this beautiful looking gal. And they said, no, don't do that. And they said, the reason why is because 10s are like lemons. They look good, but when you bite into them, you have to live with them. They're miserable, okay, because they're self-centered. They're obnoxious. They are impatient. They are all these, they've never developed any character qualities, and they act like the whole world exists for them. And they would be miserable to live with as a wife. They're like a lemon. Okay, every time you bite, you pucker. Not good, right? So that's, the third one is an interesting one because it's the exact opposite of what I was just talking about and that is you can be ugly on the outside but beautiful on the inside. These are kiwis, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at a kiwi but it looks like it needs a shave, all right? And it's this, it's really nondescript. I mean, does that look like something you'd walk in and go, yum? No, it looks like, what is that? A fuzzy marble? Or, you know, I mean, it's just a weird looking fruit. You would not pay this much attention if you walked along and saw this lying on the ground. Okay? And yet inside this is a really yummy fruit, right? Everybody knows, oh, you don't look at the outside, you dumbbell. It's the stuff on the inside that counts. You know, and a lot of women are like this. I know a lot of very plain-looking women who are absolutely stunningly beautiful on the inside. And as a matter of fact, they are so cool to hang out with and so gorgeous in their spirit that you forget what they look like. And they just become gorgeous to you because they are absolutely beautiful on the inside. And as soon as I say that, I'll bet you you've thought of people who are like that, right? You would never notice them. If they walked through the room, you'd never notice them for their looks. But when you sit down and talk with them, you never forget them the rest of your life, okay? Scripture's saying that's a better way to be than uh, to be all dolled up and ugly on the inside. It, be a little plain on the outside, be gorgeous on the inside. That's a good way to go. And then the other way you can go is this one, and this is kind of an inside joke in our, in our family here, but you can be beautiful on the outside and yummy on the inside too. That is a double-decker Costco chocolate cake that my wife absolutely loves, all right? And I bought it in honor of her, so yum, honey. And, uh, but you can be beautiful on the inside, but you're also commanded to be beautiful on the inside, right? And so when you look at this and you uh, look at those object lessons, the question in this morning is, which one are you? Which one of those four are you? 
Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in great worth in God's sight. Proverbs 11.22 says this, like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Now that's a pretty description, right? Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Okay? In other words, if you got outward beauty but you got no heart, uh, it really comes off wrong. Then Peter goes on and extends the illustration a little farther. He says, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Now, the problem with people like Abraham and Sarah is they're not real people to us. We go, oh yeah, it was easy. She's Sarah, he's Abraham, he's a godly dude, he always prayed, God told him what to do, and then they just went and did it, and it wasn't hard at all. No, 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 stop. Okay, you've read that story in Genesis. It was not anywhere near that simple. Right? For example, hey honey, start packing, we're moving. Oh, awesome, where? I don't know. Right? Gals, you're security oriented. How well would that go? Oh, I trust you, honey. Yeah, that's okay. Would that go over well? No, right? And yet that's what Abraham did. And not only did they go somewhere, 1,500 miles. And they didn't have SUVs and packing trucks back in the day. They had camels and carts and donkeys, okay? Can you imagine 1,500 miles on a donkey? That'd give you a whole new definition of shock absorber, right? (laughs) Through desert and bandits and all kinds of stuff. Or how about this one? Hey, honey, you know what? You're pretty, you're pretty pretty. You're gorgeous. And the problem is when we get that 1,500 miles there, someone might want to take you. So why don't you pretend that you're my sister? How well would that go over with you, gals? Can you imagine, Sarah, am I going to be part of some guy's harem? Well, and that actually happened almost twice, right? That was not easy or simple thing to pull off. Uh, in other words, there's some desperate things here situations and it says that Sarah continued to handle it well or how about the last one hey honey we're gonna have a kid what yeah we're gonna have a kid yeah I don't think so long gone and gone for good fan chance of that happening you know most of you gals are tired in your 20s when you had kids can you imagine when you're 90 yeah some of you are going no that's not a good idea right and yet she had a baby it says when she was 90 But in all of this, and you know Sarah's story, it says that Sarah submitted and called Abraham Lord. And you're sitting here saying this morning, Amen. When God speaks to my husband and he actually listens, I'll call him Lord too. Right? You're supposed to laugh at that. Ha ha. No. Okay. (laughs) What's the actual point though? Peter encases a nugget here right at the end that gives us some insight on this instruction and specifically for you as wives. Although I believe it applies to all of us. So what's the nugget? If you just go the next verse, it says this, for you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, I like the NIV version of it better for this. It says you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not Give way to fear. What is, what is this passage trying to talk about is the tendency for wives to be consumed by or taken over by fear. What robs a woman of a gentle 
and quiet spirit. In other words, what robs a woman of the peace inside her heart? Peter identifies it here as fear. Caving into fear, being controlled by fear, is a battle that we can all identify with, but I think Peter's speaking specifically to women at this point. I have said before that the number one drug of choice in America is control. You've heard me say that, right? Uh, But if, if that is true, the needle that injects it is fear. The fear of what could happen. And Peter gives insight into something I think is very important. Sarah, for all her flaws, and you know that story in Genesis, you can go back and read it. For all her flaws, did not cave into fear. And she could have. I mean, she, she laughed at God, right? You know that story. She had flaws. But she didn't cave into fear. I find it interesting that we have it better than almost any generation that has ever existed on the face of the earth. And yet we are more fearful than almost any generation that has ever existed on the face of the earth. So accoutrements and things and possessions don't necessarily give peace, right? And matter of fact, sometimes they actually rob peace from us. Fear and love can sometimes be mixed up. And sometimes even they can produce the same result. So uh, if you do something out of a motive of fear and not of love, sometimes people can't tell because the right result happens. Right? But it doesn't do that in the long run. In the long run, love and fear produce completely different things within a marriage. If you have the foundation of love, it produces one set of fruits if you, produce, if you operate off the foundation of fear, it produces a different set of fruits in a marriage. And God's trying to warn women not to base the, the foundation of their marriage off of fear, which is then control, which is then uh, taking away the respect that's due the husband. What does that look like? Love is the foundation of heaven. Fear is the foundation from hell. Right? And once we can get off on that, we can go really wrong in our thinking. And ladies, I just want to say, you make wonderful wives, you make great moms, you make lousy Jesuses. And when we take not only your husband's role, but then you take his role and you run it all, you know what you have? Very exhausted women. And one of the things that goes out when you take control is when a woman is well-loved, what do women do? When a woman's well-loved, they glow. They're radiant. Right? You ever see that? I remember uh, back at North Shore, Pastor Jan, uh, this couple walked in one time and he said, uh, what do you see, Stephen? I looked and there was this guy and the wife and, and man, she looked sour. I mean, unhappy, unloved, sour, all my dreams have died. Um, wow. And, and Jan, Jan said, what do you see? I said, well, she doesn't look happy. And he said, he got what he built into her. Okay? He killed her spirit. Okay? He didn't love her well. But the exact opposite can also be true in that uh, guys can die the same way when their wives do not respect them. They just die inside. Usually they go silent, but they just die inside. And so Peter here is identifying this whole issue of fear. Fear and love can produce similar results in the short run, as I said, but they produce very different fruits in the long run. And ladies, 
this morning, as I use those four object lessons, right? Uh, the cow tongue, the lemon, the kiwi, and the cake. If you were to uh, just evaluate this morning, where do you find yourself dwelling in your heart most often? Out of a base of love or out of a base of fear? Which one has the strongest pull on you? First John, John writes this, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Abide means we dwell together. Abide means we're tight. Abide means we're, we're hooked up and we're, we're next to each other, rubbing elbows together. It says, By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, why? Because he first loved us. So ladies, will it work if Jesus first loved you, but then you don't respect your husband out of fear? Will that work? That's what Peter's trying to say. It won't work. And so as we think about that this morning, as we wrestle with that, Wives, what what does it look like to respect your husbands? What would God identify that you are doing well right now or maybe something that you could add to your repertoire that would increase that and add that layer to your marriage relationship? Guys, we'll come back to you in two weeks. But ladies, ask that question this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we wrestle with this and as we, um, we recognize in all of us these pulls, we recognize the uh, unabated need for control. Lord, we, we recognize we, in our culture, we call them helicopter moms. And we've watched people at Little League games and we've watched people at sporting events and we realize something's really out of control. And we recognize a lot of it has to do with we are not at peace. We don't have a gentle and quiet spirit. We are stirred up. And fear has got us by the throat. And so we're trying to keep bad things from happening. And uh, somehow in the midst of that, we end up walking away from you and not listening. And so, Lord, this morning as we do this, you're, you're dad. I'm not their father. You're their father. What would be the appropriate way for a father to speak to his daughters about what they could do better with your sons? Lord, that would be the key takeaway, and I pray that would be the one thing that's kept, and I ask this in your name. Amen.